Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks the movie Hackers should have won Best Picture, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Joseph Men, a technology reporter for Reuters who's recently written a book called Cult of the Dead Cow, which he has called America's oldest hacking group. And recently he reported that one of the members of the group was presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. Is it Beto O'Rourke? It's Beto. Beto, all right, whatever. He's not going to win. Anyway, Joseph, <laughs> welcome to Recode Decode. I have been not a Beto fan for a while. But anyway, I want to hear all about him and his hacking days. So Joe and I have known each other for forever through many technology reporting iterations. I'd love to get you back on why you decided to write this book. Like, and and the, 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 I want you to get into the name and everything else. But talk a little bit about your background so people have a sense of how you got here. Let's see. I've been a journalist for 30 years. Um, I've been out in California since 98 covering tech. And, you know, at one time or another, like you, I've covered everything, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Mm -hmm. um, whatever. Uh, But I gravitated pretty early on to hacking and security Mm because I thought it was the most interesting. It crossed a lot of boundaries and people – nobody had an incentive to tell you how how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And I saw early on that it was going to get really, really bad. And so – First, I did a book about Napster. I mean, I've got I've yes. had mainstream journalism jobs, LA right. Times, Financial Times, now Reuters. But I've done three solo books on tech. The first was about Napster, and the second was about cy- organized cybercrime and, mm-hmm. how, and how it was merging with nation-state yep. capabilities. And that was called Fatal System Error. And, you know, it did really well, and it opened people's eyes and stuff. Um, but, it, you know, it was a downer. You know, mm-hmm. it basically said we're screwed. We're screwed. Um, and since then, there have been, like, a flood of other books that say we're screwed in this way, we're screwed in that way. And I didn't want to write, like, another another book like that, mm-hmm. you know, admiring a different part of the It was the just same. a conference that that was all there was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's true. Yeah. Um, and yesterday's hearings. We'll talk about that. But it's not, you know, a certain point stops being helpful. It mm-hmm. doesn't, you know. Uh, and so I wanted to write a positive book. I wanted to say, here's something that might work. Here's something mm-hmm. that's worked in the past. Here's a model. And once I did that, then The Cult of the Dead Cow was, like, a pretty a pretty obvious way to go because right. they span the whole history of the Internet and because they've accomplished so much against such, you know, crappy odds. Right. Um, well, let's talk about your first two books, though. First, uh, Napster book, I, that was a really important book. It was about, you and I both covered it, the, the death of Napster, although it killed nothing. Like, it, the, the, right. re, the recording industry ended up killing Napster, really, which was started by uh, Sean Fanning and, uh, and others. Um, but it really was the quintessential company that started 
everything off in terms of this chaos, which I think you write in this book is about chaos too, like the chaos of the early internet and and how and and freeing people from systems, um, which of course ironically now we're stuck in a system, which is the same thing. Talk a little bit about those days when you were when you were when the early internet, because this is where this book your book comes from too. Right. Well, it's actually some of the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the Napster book was that despite the fact that it was on you know Time Magazine's cover and everybody mm-hmm. had heard of it, people didn't know really where it had come from mm-hmm. and how it got sort of corrupted by Silicon Valley greed. Right. Um, Napster, for those who don't know, is. Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so old. Let's assume some people don't know it. (laughs) Napster was this revolutionary uh, file-sharing service that used uh, peer-to-peer technology so that you didn't need massive servers and huge bandwidth that would get gunked up trying to download things. Nor gate-kept. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, unfortunately, this was used for mass piracy, um, possibly the biggest piracy ever. Of music. Yeah, where people, you could look up on anybody else's computer what music they were offering up in MP3s, um, recordings, and just download it from them, and they download it from you. And you and um, it was actually had this other really cool, like, sort of chat features, and mm-hmm. you could find people with similar interests and stuff like that. And it, in a way, it was sort of like a, a proto-social network in yes, addition to everything else. It was. Um, but it was real technology sort of combining presence awareness of AOL, Instant Messenger, mm-hmm. you know, with the sort of peer-to-peer innovation. And the and peer-to-peer innovations happened throughout. It wasn't just Napster was the first Napster big Napster was the first big one. And then, like, major companies, mm-hmm. like, wow, we could save a lot of money doing this. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it has, like, tons of applications. Mm-hmm. But Napster, you know, went up against the record industry, which mm-hmm. understandably was pretty annoyed um, that people could find even obscure unreleased tracks right. over Right, because the record industry had sort of an iron fist over everything. Right. Releasing. And, you know, they're not the sweetest people no. in the world. So screw um, them, right? But one of the hidden things was that people thought Napster was a revolution and it was exciting and screw the man and all this stuff. But basically their business model was extortion. They were going to extort the record industry and then sell out for billions of dollars right. um, because they would actually know more about the record industry's customers than the record industry did. Mm-hmm. Because the record industry doesn't really see who no, buys what. they just put what. stuff out, and yeah. that's that. Right. So they picked the wrong industry to try and extort. Yeah, because um, they're mafia. Because, <laughs> well, you know, they— Don't extort the mafia. You know, it was— You don't a, have to say it. It wasn't, a quite, it wasn't a, the wisest call in the world. And mm-hmm. um, they almost got away with it. They almost got like a billion dollars. And mm-hmm. then um, Sean's uncle got too greedy and wanted, you know, another billion, and it all fell apart. Mm-hmm. But And unfortunately, that was like sort of the last chance to get a handle on this because, you know, the other the other outfits learned from Napster and said, oh, well, we'll base ourselves offshore. We'll, we won't keep track of what our users are doing. We'll download it, and then we'll never see them again. And, and it's hopeless. So, I mean, it, but on the other hand, it also set the stage for iTunes and, right. and uh, a part of Apple's. Well, comeback. it was always coming that way. It's just how they were going to do it. And obviously, the record industry wasn't innovative. But having that terrible cop made it easier for Steve to say, well, look, you want to go with Napster? Is that what you want? Or right. you want to have a reasonable price where people right. can buy a single? Right. But it, it opened up this idea, because I want to link it to your book, it, uh, of that you would open your digital life to people, which I think was, well, like you get in an Uber, like you get these kind of things are, are big deals. The idea that you'd rent your house out to someone that you yeah. don't know. Well, you know, it's, so that's true on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Perso- people's personal relationships with the internet is very important. People were exposing themselves. That's true. You know, I you mentioned like some of the big companies now. Another reason I wrote that book was that I mean I thought it was a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. It's like these guys were deliberately breaking the law, mm-hmm. 
Kleiner Perkins was willing to invest in them even though they'd concluded that they were breaking the law um, because they were going to get so big so fast that they could flip it and make a deal and be great. And I just thought, wow, this is crazy. I thought this is an illustration of the dot-com insanity that people would invest in something that was illegal. It turns out that that's a role model and that companies like Uber and Airbnb are like, have and the Facebook, same attitude. And Facebook, breaking rules. Yes. Right. Donald Trump, breaking rules until, you know, until you get caught, but you don't necessarily get caught. Um, though Napster did close, that did close down. So did, did that, is that what got you interested in the idea of cy- the cyber crimes? Because, you know, again, this opening up of the Internet and people's sh- peer-to-peer sharing was also dangerous, the idea of, of people being having access to your... I wasn't thinking about it that abstractly. Um, so, I, you know, my day-to-day job was at the LA Times, and I you know, was interested in hacking as, as a bigger deal and getting sort of worse and worse despite the fact that people were spending money about it on it. Um, but it was also just the individuals. Like People didn't know that Sean Fanning was a hacker, mm-hmm. um, and he was part of the same circles as people in the cult of the dead cow. They were early beta testers of the Napster program. And so I got to know some very good young security people from working on the Napster book. Right. And their their basic worldview is things are going to be really bad. Well, talk about that back then, and then I want to talk about the book itself. Talk about that, where you started. Things are going to be bad. Well, so the basic problem is, as Vince Cerf told me, is that, you know, the Internet basically escaped from the lab. You know, they were going to get to security, um, but the thing took off. And, of course, you know, they were like mild-mannered professors. You know, they were interested in, you know, a distributed network that would survive nuclear attack, which is where the DARPA money comes from back in the day. But then it was like academics. They're the only ones that, you know, they thought about using it. And the thing just kind of escaped. Um, And... It's basically indefensible. You know, you can't really, you don't really know who you're talking to. And it was designed so that all these different, you know, applications could work over it and it wouldn't discriminate, um, which is great for innovation and great for crime. And then the software, the other, you know, huge problem is software. So people keep buying more software, stacking software on, on top of other software. And on average, every thousand lines of code has a bug in it, and some of those bugs are exploitable. And, you know, the more complicated your your network, your organization, the less defensible it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just it was just getting worse and worse. And nobody there's, – there's really no way to deal with it unless you do kind of a, a blue sky, start over type of approach. And there just – there was no momentum for that because there's no money for that. Right. And so you wrote this with cautionary tale that this was coming, uh, and it came. And it, it absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you imagine the state is now of that from your second book, which was about what could happen? Obviously, well, the second, seeing iterations. The, the, of- the second book, Fatal System Error, was about how bad things are right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, among other things, you know, talked about sort of the, the failure of the court system because they the courts had decreed that software is licensed and not sold and therefore there's no product liability and nobody gets sued. Mm-hmm. Um, All over the Internet, that. The yeah. lack of liability. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's the content stuff too, mm-hmm. right? The same basic same idea approach. Yeah. To protect these companies to, in order for them to get big, which they did, <laughs> and then they can yeah. buy whatever legislators they they need. Yeah. So there was that, but there was also more specifically the alliance of, you know, when the, the organized crime, you know, the Russians. Um, it was mainly about Russians, and they did capitalism better than we did. So mm-hmm. we couldn't figure out what to invest in. We don't know which security products are better, uh, what to tweak. 
but the criminals are like they they know exactly what works and they'll reinvest in that and they dip they um you know they specialize uh, you know one guy just writes viruses and one guy's got got a botnet uh, you know all these captive computers that he can rent out and there's just amazing innovation you know like they used to say that porn drove technology yep. and like you know after like the early 00s it was basically crime mm-hmm. that was driving technology 100% so eventually the Russians, like while I was working on that book, the Russians figured out that these guys would be really useful not only for, you know, to get a cut of their take, but to deploy against Georgia and Estonia and other countries that they didn't like. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that book came out in 2010 mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, and it was like the first journalism said, hmm, Russian intelligence is deliberately in bed with organized cybercrime. And now it's like your gardener knows that. Everybody knows that now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so that was that book. Um, and then, as I said, I wanted to do something. Like, Happy. Some, well, yeah. We're going to get to where it's all the bad parts are going. But so you, you, you picked this group because? Um, they go all the way back. Mm-hmm. You know, started out as Bolton board operators before there was a web. Right. And it was just, you know, dial-up modems. Again, um, you have to explain for the young people, Bolton oh. boards. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm not, not so, going to go too easy, but that one, many people don't understand. Okay, that. Bolton boards are a prehistoric um, setup wherein, uh, if you can connect to a, uh, a computer uh, via a uh, you know a, a modem, a modem that was powered by a hamster in the kitchen, um, and went incredibly slowly, then you could read files about whatever that Bolton board was dedicated to. Right, um, and people would post things on it. Yes, it's and, the early internet. It's a version of the internet, but that, it's right. from a Bolton board which we used to have when we were younger, which is. Put a pan in it. That's right. Yeah, that, that was the metaphor. And um, and sometimes only one person could connect at a time. So you would write something and then you would go away and then you'd come back a day later to see if anybody left any comments. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly rudimentary. But in a way that was good for this group because it was sort of self-selecting. If you were online then, you put a lot of effort into it, mm-hmm. either because you had no life or because you, you really were interested in the technology itself that was allowing you to do this, or you were desperate to connect with people who, who were like you. All right, so what year did this start? 1984. 1984. It's very early. Very early. Yeah. There's this kind of magical population bubble uh, for tech people. People, um, so it goes from when War Games came out and taught people. Matthew Broderick. Yeah, and taught people that you could um, war dial and just connect into interesting places and things might happen, uh, sometimes including a nuclear war. And uh, the the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which passed uh, in the mid-'80s, three years later, um, and basically said that everything you're doing is illegal. Um, so if you came online and, like, you got excited and then you saw the feds take it away, mm-hmm. or at least imposing really penalties, um, that was very painful. And that sort of radicalized people, um, sure. protect people in a way. And so a lot of influential people came from that little population bubble. The small population of, of using it during that, that yeah, period. Yeah, if you're 11, 12, 13. Right. Yeah. And what they would do is just basically dial into different network systems. That's right. And do things. Right. And these guys had their own bulletin boards. Um, right. And, you know, some of them were devoted to punk music and some were just uh, making fun of more sophisticated hackers. There were some that were sort of more crime-oriented, mm-hmm. um, but those guys happened to drop out of CDC very early. So right, they, right. And uh, to the very simple, which changing grades and the other taking and money. And, and you know, the, the, the catch is that everybody's a criminal because you needed long-distance service. Unless the Bolton Board was in your area code, mm-hmm. uh, children, uh, long-distance service is something that um, <laughs> you where the phone company charges you or your parents. It's the first three numbers of your thing. <laughs> That's an area code. But the area bre- code. it costs three, four, five hundred dollars a month yep. to get onto these Bolton Boards because it's so laborious mm-hmm. uh, and slow. And so 
basically everybody got you know got away with that once, and then their parents read them the riot act, and then they stole credit card numbers or you know long distance credit card uh, calling cards, and so basically everybody you know there are all these CTOs, CSOs of Fortune 50 companies now that were criminals at the time. That started in the sub. When we get back, we're going to talk about this cult of the dead cow and how it got named. We're here with Joseph Men. He's the author of a new book called Cult of the Dead Cow. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Joseph Men, who's a report, a technology, a longtime technology reporter I've known for a long time. He works for Reuters now, but he has written a book called Cult of the Dead Cow, which he has called America's oldest hacking group. So talk about this one in particular. There's lots of hacking groups. There's all kinds of them. Why did you look at this one? Because um, it's the oldest. It, it's not just because the, it's the, the most influential. And they're basically good guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the point. I mean, some of them dabbled in crime. Right. But that was never the point of the organization. And over- Dabbling crime mean breaking into systems to just see if they could do it. Yes. Right. I mean, they weren't about destruction. They weren't about stealing. They followed, like, the sort of early hacker code, which is something that I think that we have lost. Mm-hmm. Something I'm attempting to bring back here. Which is? Well, that knowledge is good um, and that information should be shared and that technology should help people. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to go back. Yeah. We need to, we need to learn from these guys because they're still around and we can ask them what so it was like. So talk about this particular group. There were other, there's lots of hacking groups, but this, talk about this one in particular. Right. So this one is still around. They're, they, you know, they are still doing things, but they evolved radically multiple times. So, so how did they start? What was so it? funny, they wrote these text files. Mm-hmm. Text files was sort of the lingua franca of, of, um, of the uh, Bolton board era of the internet. You know, you, you could write essays about anything, you know, fiction, um, uh, humor, um, song lyrics. Sometimes they just transcribe song lyrics. But what the Cult of the Dead Cow did, their text files were pretty funny. They were pretty good quality. And they there was some marketing pizzazz around them. They numbered all the text files and distributed them as widely as they could to other bulletin boards. And people would want to have, like, CDC, like, 1 through 10, and mm-hmm. then 11 through 20 or whatever. And so a lot of people, if you came online, they were some of the first 
textiles you were likely to see. So they they got established sort of in the part of the subculture very early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then an, one of the more important things they did is that they had a member named Jesse Dryden, son of Spencer Dryden of the Jefferson Airplane uh, out here in San Francisco. And Jesse started a hacking uh, uh, convention called uh, HoHoCon mm-hmm. in 1990 in Texas. And this was the first hacker gathering to invite the cops and the press, um, which has become a standard now. Yep. And because they had this conference— some more technologically sophisticated hackers came. And these there was a lot of overlap with a group called The Loft, very famous, the first sort of shared hacking space, um, guys who testified before Congress in 1998. Those people came down to HoHoCon, and they sort of got um, melded in with the CDC group. So initially the CDC was making fun of like more sophisticated, accomplished criminal hackers. So what hackers. was the point of them do, creating this? Explain why these groups formulated. Uh, well— I mean, they're sharing it, tips essentially. It's so, like a sewing circle. <laughs> so there's there's different reasons for different groups. I mean, like the hardcore criminal guys, yeah, they're you know they are collaborating and like, okay, you're good at you know you figure out how to break into AT and T and you know I'll, you know I know what you do when you find the manual and then there's that stuff. The CDC was more like the the liberal arts wing. They were like. Yeah, so I mean, you guys go off and do what you want, and you know, here's a place to you know relax and hang out, and you know, talk about technology um, and not be real judgy about it. So mm-hmm. there, 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 you know, there. One of them became a DA. Um, you know, one of them went into politics, mm-hmm. uh, famously. Uh, and others didn't are artists and uh, performance artists, and uh, which came in handy later on. <laughs> So they, so they so they evolved, um, and then they're at the but same. But as, as a group, when you say cult of day cut, it's just people join and leave. Correct? Yeah. People are invited. It invited. is super selective. Yeah. Uh, one of the rules is you can't can't ask to join. Right. They have to find you. So sort of like so. Uh, Matt Blaze, um, great cryptography professor, said it's like nerd skull and bones. Uh huh. So they tapped you. Yeah. Right. Right. And you and would, small. It's right. a small group. How many people are? Fifty all time. Twenty at any given time. At any given time. Yeah. And how do people leave? People retire, you know, retire. the people leave, retire. So, I mean, how, what's the churn? Not much. I mean, people And what's are the organizing principle? Who runs it? There's one do. guy. There's one. One, one guy whose name was Swamp Rat in, initially, and then it was Grandmaster Rat. Okay. Um, but his real name, he's, I added him in the book, is Kevin Wheeler. Mm-hmm. And um, he was like a marketing whiz from Lubbock, Texas, which is where it starts, uh, home of Buddy Holly, and Texas Tech University more relevantly. So he was a kid of... Um, of academic administrators. And uh, it's Kevin's show. I mean, Kevin, you know, other people, somebody can nominate a member, somebody has to have met him, and there's a discussion, um, and then Kevin gets the final say yes or no. Mm -hmm. But uh, Kevin is still running it, and... uh, How old is he now? Gosh. um, He started in his... He'd be late 40s. So he started in his teens. Almost everybody was born in, like, 70, 71, because that gets you to the population bubble that we talked about earlier. Right. Interestingly, that also means that they were born to young parents during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So there's there's some yippee anti-establishment stuff around that, too. Right. Which is interesting, because some of them wind up working for the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. So they joined this cult. (laughs) It's not a cult. No, I know. They just wanted to sound a little sinister. It's actually named after a slaughterhouse, an abandoned slaughterhouse in Texas. Um, You you know, you couldn't, you know, they tried hard to have like a little bit of edge Mm because, you know, they're teen boys with one exception. Right. Um, so, yeah, they wanted to sound a little sinister or nobody would want to check them out, mm-hmm. you know. You know, savvy marketing, which is one of the reasons that so they So they survived. wanted people to join, but they also wanted to be exclusive. They wanted yes. the right people to join. What That's were the right. criteria for being tapped? And by uh, the way, go to teen boys, no girls. Uh, there was one uh, one teen girl, um, mm-hmm. uh, Lady Carolyn, whose real name is Carrie Campbell, who was brought in by Beto O'Rourke. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know what your criteria are for a presidential candidate, mm-hmm. but I find it interesting that he integrated the most influential group of good guy hackers in the United States. All right. So so they have this group that then do what? What is the duties of so being in the cult of the dead cow? It's a group think uh, exercise, but they also support each other in different endeavors. And in the beginning, it's like, hey, I want to start like a, a underground music magazine, which one of them did. Uh, Matt Cowie founded a magazine called Cool Beans, which took its name from one of Kevin Wheeler's favorite expressions. You know, other others, you know, started businesses, you know, security businesses, and they published research. Um, but the most, the the reason that they got well known uh, twenty years ago mm-hmm. were the stunts they pulled to try and shame Microsoft into taking security more seriously. So right. many people found out about the cult of the dead cow then, um, and that's when the performance art thing came in handy. But so it was talk all, about that. But it was also like really rigorous, strategic thinking, which mm-hmm. was I think super impressive. So. Uh, Microsoft court-certified Monopoly, you and I covered that back mm-hmm. in the day, um, had um, thought, you know, maybe we should, this Internet thing is going to take off after all, and we should bundle the protocol into Windows 95. Mm-hmm. So they did that, but they didn't put in any security. No, they did not. Um, so basically anybody with, you know, who knew anything could take over your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was reckless. Um, and so the Cult of the Dead Cow decided to do something about that. So one of their number, um, Josh Bookbinder, who used the handle Sardistic, wrote a program Sardistic. called... Sardistic. Yes. All wrote right. a program called... Um, uh, back orifice, which was a play on uh, back office. Back office, okay. And um, you know, the the point was that bad guys already had these tools, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and Microsoft wasn't doing anything about it. So they decided to be a media spectacle, and they went to DefCon, which had succeeded HoHoCon as the place. Right, DefCon is to be. the hacker. Gathering. It's now huge. Tens yeah. of thousands of people yep. go to Las Vegas in the middle of the summer because it's cheap. And members of the CDC had already given talks over the years, and they sort of like they, they had sort of this reputation for theatrics. But they they went crazy. They had uh, so Kevin Wheeler, Grandmaster Rat was in a cowboy hat and rabbit fur chaps and gold jewelry, mm. and leading the crowd in this call and response. I say dead, you say cow. Dead cow, mm-hmm. dead cow. And they threw out CDs with back orifice on it, mm-hmm. um, and basically said, "Go hack the heck out of everything." And that got them on TV. Mm-hmm. And once the TV people were asking Microsoft, "Well, what's your plan to deal with that?" That really put the first serious pressure on them. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that, you know, yes, there's going to be collateral damage. There was going to be more hacking, but Microsoft was actually going to have to address this. And so <laughs> to their chagrin, Microsoft decided to address this by saying there's nothing to worry about, but if you're really, really concerned about security, you can upgrade to Windows NT. Or- sure. It's always a marking opportunity. Right. And that really pissed them off. Mm-hmm. Um, so the CDC decided to come back with uh, a better program called uh, BO2K, Back mm-hmm. Office 2000, the following year. And this time it was open source so that anybody could modify it and get past antivirus if they wanted to. Uh, you know, anybody knew what they were doing. Um, and it was much harder for Microsoft to ignore it. And so uh, instead, Microsoft actually started getting serious about security. Mm-hmm. So which that they was, hadn't. Which they hadn't. They, 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 had they had was It was a single point of origin system. Uh, so, because everybody was using it, and mm-hmm. so it was very easy. Big fat target, right? Absolutely, because it was the only one, and they didn't take care about security ever. There was one hacking after the next, and probably it, so many more that were never reported. It, it's a bad record, but so CDC does those two things, and then they invent something they call hacktivism. They coin the term hacktivism, mm-hmm. which they define as uh, security or hacking work in service of human rights. 
other people have taken that mantle and done various things, um, some more defensible than others. Um, it's an interesting, very interesting area. Mm-hmm. But that was just sort of one of their sort of areas of influence after the spotlight moved on from CDC. You know, the hacktivism thing continued with them and with others. And they had, they had an influence on TOR, super important anonymity tool, and on the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, which tracks how governments uh, use surveillance against tech, against their own citizens. A uh, super important outfit. But they also did amazing things in government and in the, the private sector. Mm-hmm. So um, in the private sector, the Loft guys founded something, turned it into something called At Stake, which was this security boutique, lots of ex-hackers who went inside Microsoft and big banks and other places and told them what they were doing wrong in terms of security. Right. Hugely influential. Out of At Stake comes people like Katie Masuris, sort of like the godmother of the bug bounty movement. Um, and that's when you you're, you put out bounties to to find bugs for in, good guy hackers, right. right? Like give give them an opportunity to get paid for their work instead right. of saying criminalizing the entire class right. and driving them into the arms of the military or organized mm-hmm. crime. Um, uh, Alex Stamos also comes out of at, at stake. Stamos famously winds up quitting um, Yahoo as CISO or on principle or, or CSO actually, and then Facebook is the one that blows the whistle on Russian disinformation mm-hmm. and right. now at Stanford. Not loud enough. And maybe should have done it earlier, but it wasn't in his remit. That wasn't what right. his job was supposed sure. to be. Nobody was looking for organized propaganda. Right, absolutely. We'll get to that in the next section. So, And then Better Work, what, what was he doing there? He just was... So a, Better Work was in the earliest right. incarnation. Right. So he was you know, one of the first five or six members. He was in neighboring... Uh, or semi-neighboring El Paso. He was, uh, his handle was Psychedelic Warlord. Um, He was interested in music um, and in sort of being uh, anti-establishment. And he's actually fairly thoughtful. He wrote one sort of like idealistic piece, you know, again, as a a 14, 15-year-old about like what the world would be like without money and, Mm -hmm. you know, why it might be a good thing and how it would work. And I think the most interesting piece is that he did an interview with a Mm -hmm. neo-Nazi. Instead of just, you know, writing some screed about how neo-Nazis are bad, he and a, and a friend tape-recorded the guy and let him hang himself with his own words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be concerned about neo-Nazis in the in Texas right. in 1980s right. is kind of ahead of the curve. Absolutely. By 40 years. Absolutely. What was? How did he get interested in this particular cult? Well, stop calling it I a know, cult. But you called it the cult of the dead. Well, the it's cult the, of the dead cow, CDC. Okay, how did he get interested in CDC? He was traipsing around the bulletin boards, mm-hmm. and he hit some of the bulletin boards that were run by CDC members, including Kevin's, which was Demon Roach Underground. Um, because, you know, it had an attitude, and it was funny, and it was also Texas. And, you know, he— Almost most of them felt like misfits culturally sure. where they were. And he felt that way in El Paso. Um, Beto did. Um, he didn't, you know— he didn't. He didn't fit in, and he was excited about technology, and um, so he found these guys. And you know, he told me like he wanted to be. He wasn't as smart or as cool, and he wanted to be with the cool kids. Right, which he, which he did, which is very typical of many many people in technology day. That's where they found sort of these lonely places where they could meet people. Yeah, and and meet like minded people. Right. right, and and so he was part of like the early you know shaping of of the, you know sort of the guiding principles of of the group, which again was like. Don't do harm. Have fun. You know, poke a finger in the eye of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of like you know, an, uh, like a high school underground paper sure. in those days. That Absolutely. Was like the vibe. So what what do they do today? What are their what are they today? Um, Beto's running for president. I got that. Yeah. Um, so can his friends help him get the numbers up? 
Um, <laughs> they are trying. So some of them are. So at least two members of CDC held early fundraisers mm-hmm. for Beto when he's running against Ted Cruz sure. for Senate, and there's you know they're still involved. They're still they're still helping. So um, among the famous names out of CDC. Um, so Mudge, his real name is Peter Zatko, uh, went to DARPA, ran cybersecurity uh, grant making at DARPA, um, and uh, is now head of security at um, Stripe, mm-hmm. which is an important big company these days and has lots of security mm-hmm. issues. And then one of the guys from um, CDC and one of the guys from Loft together founded Vericode, which is now a billion-dollar company, private company. And Vericode was super important because it allowed um, big software buyers to look at what the binaries in their code um, that they bought from somewhere were were actually doing, as opposed to what the source code thought they should be doing or what some third-party audit Mm -hmm. thought it should be doing. And so, again, it was a different way to sort of tip the balance away from the uh, oligopoly software giants and and to the actual users, commercial or or individual. So they they came up with all these different ways to do that. Like the the Mudge really opened the eyes of government um, as to what you know what cybersecurity claims were were logical and which were farcical because uh, mm-hmm. they didn't know they needed hackers to come in and help. Sure, help them absolutely. So and where does it that. where is it today? The group. You Kevin know, still runs it. it uh, Kevin still runs it. I, you know, I'd say two two of these sort of like the cultural mainstays that go back to the early '90s and are more involved day to day. There's one um, whose name is uh, his handle is Omega. His real name I outed in the book is Misha Kubeka. He lives around here in the Bay Area. And another is um, Death Veggie. Um, oh, God, these- Luke, uh, Luke Benfry, who's um, is actually in London, does does security work. So does so does Misha. Um, so they're in security. They're sort of like mm-hmm. it's funny because a lot of them are inside these companies, big or small, and nobody knows that they were part of this this group because right. they were all anonymous. And where does it go? Where did these? Because these groups were sort of at the beginning of the internet, like uh, you know, the beginning of Apple. They were all pirates, although they never really were pirates. But this this ethos of good pirates or <sighs> well, so they've had to keep adapting. And, you know, one of their ways is they, they take, you know, retail politics and mm-hmm. disinformation a lot more seriously. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they, most of them are either out of, you know, many of them are out of security or um, are running their own businesses in security. But some of them are, are working on human rightsy things. Um, but is, is, is what I'm talking about is the concept as powerful as it was. Well, so— I think I think it is. I think it'd be and and I, I think it'd be sort of harder to replicate now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so one of the one of their strengths was that they came. Their people were interested in hardware hacking mm-hmm. and their and various parts of software sure. hacking, and then sort of wound up in how do you hack the media? How do you mm-hmm. trick the media into right, we're covering things that we think is important? And now it's all the, the industry, security industry, is all compartmentalized and specialized, right. and and kind of too clean. Which is another problem. You don't have to make all well, these We're going to talk about the next, yeah. Okay. But what happens to this group? It just continues. It, it continues. It continues. Even if Kevin went away, it just continues to be this. I think, it, yeah. No, it, it would, yeah. Yeah. But they what really, I mean is, is that relevance today? You know, I think running running somebody for president is pretty relevant. Yeah, that's true. All right, we're here with Joe Mann. He's the author of a new book called Cult of the Dead Cow, which is not a cult. I got that. And we're going to take a break now. We'll be back after this to talk about where hacking is going on a worldwide level. There was just a hearing yesterday discussing the Russian interference and things like that. There's lots of areas to, to plumb here. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. 
Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're here with Joe Mann. He's the author of a new book called Cult of the Dead Cow. He's also a reporter who covers cybersecurity for Reuters. Beyond this group, this is a group that was trying to, hacking for good, trying to make sure that we were less, more secure, or aware of the insecurity that we have. Can you talk really where we are today? Because, you know, it just seems to have gotten worse, not better. How, can you? I was just at a conference, and, and some someone from Oracle was talking about the the idea of possibly— it wasn't from Oracle, it was talking about someone—I think David Sanger was talking about, from New York Times, the idea of sovereign clouds, these Berlin walls between different systems. Can you sort of give an overview of where we are now? Because yesterday's hearings, uh, Robert uh, Mueller was talking about more Russian interference, and which is essentially hacking, Um or not just hacking, but using these systems. So can you talk about where we are now as a, as a group using these devices? Yeah. So, um, so the big, the big picture is pretty bad, which Mm -hmm. is why I think it's important to learn from what has worked in, Mm -hmm. um, in the past. Um, so nation states are all over this now. When I started covering security, it was a 80% of Silicon Valley story and 20% of Washington story. And now Mm -hmm. it's completely flipped. It's a 80% Washington story. So that means, um, you know, the FBI in pursuit of international hackers and, and local hackers. And it means, um, the NSA and the CIA. I mean, now their job isn't, isn't, you know, really, you know, at, you know, this human intelligence is still important, but it's all about hacking computers and phones right. and intercepting, you know, trying to break encryption and, and all that stuff. It's all about the tech, mm-hmm. just like everything else is about the tech. So it's become more of a geopolitical thing, uh, as I had expected. And so it's a weapon and it's being used. And the unfortunate part about that is that um, the United States has the most uh, perhaps the most to lose because we have so many assets tied up online um, and we're so connected and super vulnerable. Uh, at the same time, we are super ineffective in getting decent security out around companies. I mean, one advantage to living in a dictatorship is that if the yeah. head of the country says you will, you know, patch your window systems now, it gets done. And we, you know, we seem to be allergic to any kind of regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that doesn't happen. Uh, right. Chamber of Commerce objects even to publishing, you know, best practices for given <laughs> critical industry. So our defenses suck. We have the the most to lose. And we continue to invest about 90% of our cyber monies on offense, if you include interception as, as a, part of, a part of offense. And that's, that, that's something I've written about frequently, and that's a recipe for disaster. The other big problem is escalation. Mm-hmm. Um, if we we are starting to use cyber weapons against Iranians we don't like who do bad things or whatever, and they come back at us, and there are no clear rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, 
what our rules are are classified. So it's hard to attribute, even if you do attribute, uh, it's hard to, you know, attack the right folks and not have any collateral civilian infrastructure damage because um, everybody wants to be online. And then you don't know what they're going to do back to you, but it might well be worse. All right, let's first start with the consumer threat, and then we'll get into grid and governmental threat. Consumers with their own information, and I'm, I'm going to get to sort of what happened with Russians and Facebook and everything else. Talk a little bit about that. Where, How vulnerable are consumers given uh, so, completely? Yeah, no, it's actually worse than it's ever been, which is really saying something. You know, people are doing everything um, online, and they're being promiscuous about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, my feeling is, I mean, I personally, I will use a credit card online, never a debit card, which is harder to recover uh, from fraud. Um, but I, I won't, you know, I'll go to a few big places that I know have decent security rather than any, you know, Tom, Dick, or Harry with a website. Mm -hmm. um, so most people do not do that. Um, they'll spread it around. Uh, and they might not check their credit card statements uh, at all. Uh, but if they do, they might not notice things that are that are a little out of whack. Let's see. There's that. I mean, the good news is, <laughs> the good news is most consumers have protection from their banks or their credit card companies, and so there hasn't been this sort of crisis where people where lose their houses. Someone's bank, yeah. It does. It is start. You know, I've said that for years, but it is actually starting to happen. Some some of the nastiest, like email compromises or whatever, is is there bad guys who are looking for people about to buy a house, mm -hmm. um, and they'll say and they'll pretend to be your realtor and say, hey, we need you to wire the escrow money today or mm -hmm. whatever, because they've been tracking the conversations. They know when that's plausible, mm -hmm. and that way, you know, and they can afford to invest because that's a big. Hit, I think 20K, 30K that way. And that is actually often not insured. Right. And so there are people that are losing houses now because yep. of cybercrime, which did not used to happen. Yeah. And you have to remember on the other side of the planet, Russia, Ukraine, Nigeria, whatever, there's people's jobs. They go to work in the morning and this is what they do. They try and they try and look for people to host. Right, exactly. That's why I go to the bank. Yeah. I'm a goer to the banker. Yeah. Which is interesting. I won't wire anything. Yeah. Digitally. But it's interesting. They are very careful about it, the ones you are, the actual bankers you're working with. Yeah. It's a really owner's process given the, the fraud. So, I mean, I have my own security protocols, you know, which are like, you know, my friends in security have uh, have coached me on. and mm -hmm. But it's 30 or 40 pages. Right. It's a lot of work. Such as? Give me a few. Well, you know, two FA is a good thing. Right. Um, in particular, like a two-factor authentication, sorry, and not by SMS because mm -hmm. text messages are among the least secure things mm -hmm. on the planet. So you need to come up with a different system for SMS for for two-factor. For example, a YubiKey that you can stick into a USB port and say, mm -hmm. even if somebody steals my password. They can't use it at a computer that does not also have this particular gizmo inserted into sure. the USB drive. Right. So no text SMS, which most people do. Right. I mean, that's better than nothing. Right. But it is not secure at all. Right. Um, it, it is, you know, it is, it's such an investment of time. It's so unrewarding mm -hmm. to steep yourself in this. Well, stuff. I think do do, do two-factor authentication of text if you have to because others aren't yes. doing it all. It's like having a second lock on your door. Anyone can get into a locked door. But if you have two, they're like, oh, we're going to go to the unlocked door, which it's is better. just easier. It's better, but it's certainly hackable. Um, long passwords, obviously, long, strange passwords. Long is long is most important. Strange is second most important. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, do not use. But the real problem is is uh, is reuse. Do mm -hmm. not do that. Use right. a different password everywhere. And right. you know, people make fun of the post its on the on the computer terminal. That's actually not all that bad. You know? <laughs> um, I mean, you can should be concerned about who has access to your house. But, right. 
it's, it's not a big sin to write write down right. passwords. Just don't right. put them in your wallet about using, so they don't get lost at once. Say the ones that Apple offers you, the long, the long, strong passwords. Sure, sure, that's viable. You just make sure your Apple account is protected out the wazoo. Right, right, exactly. You should have like one master account mm-hmm. and protect that out the wazoo. Right, exactly. And Apple's better than others in protecting them. I don't think I use anything on Google anymore. I just feel like. It's so vulnerable. So we didn't talk about the other stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the location from it. This is why it's, yeah, keep it's, going. it's so infuriating when, you know, people like, oh, the Attorney General of the United States give devote a whole st- speech to this horrible going dark problem mm-hmm. when they have so much more information about you than you, so you, you or your companies. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the constant pinging of your phone uh, for location data, all these apps that you gave permissions to right. that you don't, you know, you didn't go back and see what that they're using it for. It is so easy to track people. And now they're they're being very aggressive with the warrants. So mm-hmm. cell tower dumps. If they're trying to solve a crime, you know, give us everybody who was near this cell tower at, at the time of this crime. Sure. So obviously that's going to turn over, you know, innocent people's stuff. What sure. They, you know, what do they do with that afterwards? I don't right. know. There's all these sort of broad things, and they're trying to force more backdoors. And that is a disaster. And these guys at CDC were among the early people in fighting backdoors. Um, Stamos and others have continued, you know, who are influenced by them, have continued to do that. Mudge has continued to do that. Which is the inability for government to get through the backdoor. This is, in, so in, what in, in what, the most well-known case, Apple did not want right. to allow so, a backdoor yeah. into their systems. Th- that's right. They, they, they refused to hack they refused to hack a, a user's phone, mm-hmm. and you know the FBI carefully picked the least, you know, uh, you know the the worst case to try and build case law around it. Sure. So it was an actual murderous terrorist, and and you know who's dead anyway. Why can't you hack into his phone? They were trying to like use that as a precedent sure. to do it much more. Were you surprised that Apple stayed so? There hasn't been another incident like that they can hold well, on to yet. Well, the pro- the problem is that a lot of this starts in secret courts, right? And we don't find out about it. Mm-hmm. So if there is a company that has rolled over, we don't know. We don't know. Right. So only if the company appeals and makes a big stink about it, um, you know, then then we've got a shot of finding out. So I I wrote that uh, the feds had gone to Facebook and said we want to be able to tap um, Messenger, vo- you know, calls over um, Facebook Messenger, and it wasn't technically feasible then. And so they they wanted to order Facebook to come up with a change in its pro- program so they could do this. And that's not what the law said, and Facebook won. But we just barely found out about that, and there mm-hmm. still is no, almost no public record of that. There's right. Like, there's like one sentence, you know, in, in a 50-page ruling that we found. Where but most of these companies do roll over in many ways. Some of them don't. I am pretty worried about that and um, the UK passed Snoopers Charter, which which basically said the UK thinks it can tell a company to hack a customer. Australia is is passed something similar. These are the five eyes. These are supposed to be the bulwark. Right. And what's crazy is that like all not only our secrets but our corporate assets, uh, intellectual property, and everything else are protected by encryption. Our bank accounts are protected by encryption. And we're like it is. Um, if you put in a back door, it will be misused. It ha- right. it ha- 100%. It, it always happens. And when the Chinese went after Google in 2009, 2008, one of the things they went for was the Kalia, the the you know, the system for tracking, you know, that you know, where they do have to help law enforcement tap a given account. They went after that uh, probably to see like, well, which people in China mm-hmm. are the U- is the US, you know, 
tapping. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a natural intelligence target. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for bad guys, too. Bad guys want to find out if they're getting tapped Right, by, and you have, by the cops. You have uh, authoritarian governments just doing it, just doing right. it all the time. It's right. just a question of here. You know, I think the Washington Post story about the driver's licenses, like, well, it's just they'll tap them if they can. Yeah, and, you know, facial for recognition. For good reasons, but not good reasons. And facial recognition will make this much, much worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're headed for dark times here. What does anyone do about it? So you have the, first of all, you have criminals trying to get into consumer stuff. You have nation states trying to attack grids and, and, and other election uh, mm-hmm. voting machines, everything else. And you have our own government wanting very much to have the capabilities to do this also, some of which for good reasons, but always in the end, probably abused. Yes. So what do we do? Well, um, I think one of the things, you know, we didn't get into the propaganda stuff. But, right. I mean— We'll go right ahead because it was discussed yesterday at the Mueller hearings. So, you know, again, one of the things that's great about this group and that we need to learn from is is critical thinking. I mean, critical thinking seems to be in a state of dire emergency. Yes, We indeed. have more people than any time in the last 200 years believing that the earth is flat. Yeah. You know, we have total disregard for the truth. And for science uh, at, at a time when science is incredibly critical. So we need to make critical thinking cool again. And, you know, I don't know of a of a terrific way to do that except by celebrating folks who are really good at it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would admire the, the teenager who spoke to the French parliament yesterday about mm-hmm. climate change. You know, the heroes can come from unlikely places and with un- unlikely strategies, but, you know— Combining critical thinking and moral purpose is super important. On the propaganda stuff, you know, it would be nice if we had an epistemi- uh, emergency epistemology, you know, course. Um, but I don't think the government's going to going to offer it um, mm-hmm. in evaluating what you know sources. And uh, but I can't imagine the sort of conspiracy crap that's going to get thrown at whoever the Democratic nominee mm-hmm. is. I mean, there's going to be there'll probably be real dumps of their email interspersed with made up ones uh, right. for, for credibility. Because um, that's the way the sort of Russian operations were going sure. as of a couple years ago. Um, and there will be people who believe it because they want to believe it. And there will be people, people who spread it because there's a business model around spreading that mm-hmm. clickbait stuff because people click on that. Um, and Facebook and the other big companies don't seem to be doing much about it. And the federal government doesn't seem to be doing much about it. So, the, you know, there's good people sort of at like the second and third and fourth levels of government agencies that are trying to do the right thing. And there's good people inside all these companies. And they can do amazing things. They are doing, they are helping. If they then they can't solve the problem, they are helping. There's a sort of this conspiracy of good guys. Um, and, you know, a lot of them had were influenced by this group, were in this group, um, but there are more coming. And I want, and um, they need to know that they can make a difference. And I so think they can. What should, you know, with all this talk about regulation this week about around all these companies, what should government do? Let's finish up. With that, what are the three things if you had to pass? The U.S. government? Yeah. Uh, federal privacy legislation that is not weaker than the California mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. privacy Talked legislation. Talked about that a lot. Do away with um, this, the absolute protection of software companies from liability uh, mm-hmm. for selling really buggy code. Same with social media companies? Social media is the hardest because of free speech, which is a good thing, and the right to satire is certainly a good thing. Um, uh, I'm talking about immunity from there. Immunity would be a bad thing. They have immunity. Yeah. 
So there are a number of things. I think they could. Um, I mean, the you know they've got um, a cudgel with the antitrust mm-hmm. investigations, but you don't want the companies to be panicked because some of the you know some of the administration has this um, ill-supported idea about conservative uh, suppression. Oh, that part. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want them trying to make the antitrust thing go away by promoting more conservative stuff. I think transparency is is really important. I also think banning micro-targeting issue ads at least, Mm -hmm. you know, 30, 60 days before an election would make sense. Um, Maybe if if the government is not going to mandate that, maybe the tech companies could— Do it themselves. They could do it themselves. Uh, Because that that, is—once they know anything about you— I mean, this is really sinister stuff they did. They find the person that believes in the UFOs, Mm -hmm. and they peddle them the most loony conspiracy theory. And if you people are just, you know, sort of concerned about immigration, then they show them the hyped-up fake— fake news stories about so rapists. Funny. I was just with some people from, like I said, which company, and they're like, oh, it's just like TV ads. I'm like, you have to stop. Like, it is not the same thing. It is amplified. It is targeted. It is weaponized. It's not the same as a TV show going across your TV. It's not the same level of engagement. Anyway, it goes on and on. So of the one, th- I want to finish, last, last word for you. If, of the one thing that this cult of the dead cow did, what do they represent about computing that's good? So they understood that technology is supposed to be a force for good and that it's not just about the tech. The tech is a means to an end, mm-hmm. and that end includes human rights, you know, the right to free information uh, being one of them. And they're willing to be very creative about how how to do that. And so, I mean, I would have given up on, like, trying to get Microsoft to do the right thing on security long before they did. But they did that uh, over years, and then they, they – and they're willing to do it – they're willing to talk to people from different – in different, you know, some of them worked for the U.S. intelligence. Some of them hated U.S. intelligence. Right. It was a big tent, but they had basic values, and they were willing to, like, think it through and sort of challenge each other. Um, and it's like, well, if Congress doesn't know what to do, we'll figure out how to talk to Congress. They were willing to keep evolving into new arenas while maintaining their older values. Well, that's a good thing to think, and let's hope intelligence prevails. We'll see. I don't know. My grandmother used to say, intelligence has its limitations, but stupidity is infinite. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Joseph, thanks for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Joe, where can people find you online and where can they find Cult of the Dead Cow? Uh, So I'm Joseph Mann on Twitter. Uh, It's M-E-N-N, and the book is available wherever fine literature is purveyed. And what if you want to get tapped for the cows? You want to get cow tapped. <laughs> oh, well, I'll be speaking at uh, in in Vegas uh, at uh, DefCon and Black Hat. Have you been tapped to be in the Dead Council? Uh, no, and I would say no if the, if asked. I see. All right. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcast, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants, which just was released. It's by Jason Del Rey. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.